Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson, is around and alive. As we record this, it is the launch day of Disney+, and she is busy doing all the Mandalorian coverage you can possibly imagine, so uh, she'll be joining us soon. Um, and we have a lot to talk about. Uh, in the back half of this episode, we have Richard's interview with Tracy Letts, who is a playwright and an actor and kind of a legend and also has a really fun supporting role in Ford versus Ferrari as Henry Ford Jr. Um, so we'll have that in the back half. Uh, Who's cooler than Tracy Letts? He's like yeah. the Sam oh, Shepard of whatever generation he is. I mean, as someone who has also won a Tony and a Pulitzer, it was really nice to speak to someone else who has. <laughs> someone someone on your you. level. We're just like in that club together. And yeah. you're married yeah, yeah. to Carrie Coon, too, oh, of somehow. Course, yeah. well, I think, yeah. I, think I, I told Tracy that I think this is our first complete um, couple, like married couple duo, because we had Carrie oh, right. on last year, and then we had right. Tracy on, so we've completed the circle. You guys are like oh, a thruple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would love to start seeking out other famous couples and just like ask, like, like well, your husband was on, your wife was on, come join us and yeah. um, assemble it that way. And then we get invited to all their dinner parties. I think that's how that works. Um, but first, we're going to talk about uh, some of the movies that are out this week, including Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, we're going to get into some of our burning questions about what's left this Oscar season, what we don't know about. Um, but first, breaking news this morning as we record, the Golden Globes are bringing back Ricky Gervais to host for the fifth time. Uh, even as the Oscars kind of move away from having a host at all, it seems kind of clear they're not going to do one next year. Uh, the Golden Globes are uh, quintupling down on Ricky Gervais. Um, I kind of just let out a hollow scream at this news because Ricky Gervais <laughs> is hosting his been one of my least favorite things in the last decade. Uh, are either of you any more optimistic about this than I am? Well, I mean, I'm a God-fearing person, and I just find it <laughs> so offensive. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, it, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a weird choice uh, in that, like, I just not even that, like, he's done it four times previous, so it's like we'll get someone new, but like his whole shtick just seems of another era at this point. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess he's still active on Twitter, but. What does that really count for? Are we are we angry? I can't remember. Are we angry about Rich, Ricky Gervais hosting the Golden Globes for any particular stuff, or him just sort of being like a smug jerk and making like kind of rude comments about all the people who typically watch the Golden Globes? Is that basically the deal? I feel like it's mostly the latter, um, but then there's also I think the last time he like made a joke at the expense of Caitlyn Jenner that didn't really go over that well. Like there's kind of like an out of step uh, quality to it. Not yeah. just that he's like speaking truth to power, but like you know he's a very rich entertainer. So like he also is punching down in a way that he doesn't seem to acknowledge when he hosts. Yeah, and like making fun of all this stuff in in kind of a snide way, like while also sort of being very of it and very obsessed with it and very sensitive himself to like anything on Twitter or whatever. Like, it, it, you know, it's like I think that there had been a little fatigue with even Jimmy Kimmel when he hosted the Oscars, uh, although he does a good, you know, he did a competent job. 
there was a little like of that sort of wry, like, what are we all doing here? You know, right. which a little of that is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like with Gervais, it's like, okay, if he does it, if he hosts the Golden Globes for a fifth time and still acts like he's above it all, like it's like, no, I mean, he yeah. definitely will. Like, he, you yeah. know what you're going to get yeah. with him. Yeah. It is, it sort of is what it is. It is a funny, I guess it's a funny choice in, in 2019 to just go back to Guys, that well. Oh, hey. It's Joanna. I feel blessed to have shown up just in time to weigh in <laughs> on the Ricky Gervais. <laughs> We said his name three times Aww. and you had to appear to uh, <laughs> yell about him. Yeah, I mean, I second uh, sort of what Richard and Katie were saying. Um, yeah, and I think it's just I was relieved when he left and it was and then we got like Tina and Amy for a while and then he came back and then he left again. You know, it's just like every time I'm like, what is it about him that the that the Hollywood Foreign Press cannot quit? I don't get it. Like there's there's like a, a fetch there that I'm not getting. <laughs> um, and I I don't think I ever will. So like above all else, I mean, like I don't know that Andy Samberg and Sandra O oh worked perfectly last year, but like also I'm kind of like do we need a host for any of these shows after the Oscars last year I'm kind of like we don't really it's okay if we don't so what's interesting to me is he must be good at it at some uh, like probably in just like the pragmatic sense mm-hmm. like um what's your like what's your definition of good like maybe he's just good at like going to their luncheons like I don't well, know what you know I'm guessing so you know Dick Clark Productions produces the Globes and um, my friend Mark Edelman's dad, Barry Edelman, has been producing it forever and, like, calling the whole show. And I did get to go once and see Barry afterwards and, like, hear his takeaway from the show. Like, you know, he's an old school dude who wants the show to run a certain way. You know mm. what I mean? And, like, and so I'm just – it's sort of, sort of a funny side note to whatever issues we have with Ricky. Like, he he clearly – for all of his kind of, like, on-camera sort of you're constantly worried that he's going to say something horrible and ruin the whole night. Like, he must be just good at the sort of, like, transitions and everything. Like, he must not go over time. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. On time and under budget. Unless, unless this keeps happening over Dick Clark Productions' objections, you know, and they're just like, oh, guess yeah. we got to deal with Ricky again. I don't know. I, I wouldn't hmm. know how that all works. We also think about the fact that, you know, the word is that no one really wanted to host the Oscars because, like, you could get canceled so easily and they dig up all your old tweets. And that seems like part of Ricky Gervais's brand. Like, he doesn't care if everyone on Twitter hates him after this year's show. So yeah. maybe that helps is that he's willing to do it and they can lean into that and, you know, maybe push boundaries that the Oscars didn't feel like they could anymore. <laughs> And, and be honest, we've all been dying to hear Ricky Gervais's take on Me Too, right? I mean, <laughs> is this his first post Me Too hosting gig? Yeah, he hosted in twenty six yeah. in twenty sixteen. Yeah, this thing this is gonna be because it was like it was it was Seth Meyers, great, and then it was Andy and Sandra, pretty good, and now it's Ricky again. And, and it I'm was Jimmy, like, Jimmy Fallon got, was in there too, who I, I don't really remember anything oh. about Jimmy Fallon hosting the Globes. I'm sure it was fine. Oh. Um, me neither. But like, I got the email and it just said in the in the subject line, I was like, "What did I do to deserve <laughs> this this punishment? Why?" Well, the thing, I mean, it's but back to what we were saying in the beginning. Like the Golden Globes, to me, I really love them, even though they are kind of silly. And as we were talking about last week, like all award shows are made up, so they're all silly. Um, but the the Golden Globes have this vibe of like there's a lot of potential and people don't think they care about them and then they're excited to win and maybe they're drunk when they win and that's fun too. And for Ricky Gervais to stand there being like, this is so stupid. It feels like, <laughs> it's like, stop being mad at me for watching the thing that you're on. Like, I just want to enjoy this. Well, and it's actually kind of interesting because I feel like the Globes has has gained 
um, appreciation and sort of credibility. Like, not really. We all know what it is now, but I think we've kind of gone from 10 years ago being like, God, the Globes are really, like, sort of a disgrace to being like, you know what? The Globes are awesome. They're a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. The, the words are kind of meaningless, but kind of not to. Like, they've done a better job of not handing, like, weird awards to pop stars just because they're famous. You know, um, yeah. So it is sort of. It would be odd if if he comes back in that apologetic mode, um, which presumably he will. I mean, I can't really imagine. There's been like a lot of personal growth in the last years. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter, I think when you're that Twitter rich, it, it's just not possible. Yeah. I kind of liked his net. Did anyone watch his Netflix series, the most recent one? No, I didn't. The first watch. half was good, and yeah. then this. La- but it was that usual Ricky Gervais thing, where like at the beginning you're like, "Man, this guy's funny." Like at the end of the day, he's funny. He's a very right. witty, like talented comedian. And then by the end of it, it was sort of schmaltzy and like self-justifying in a way mm. where I was just like, "Dude, I don't want this from you." He like, fell just in- stay in a <laughs> nihilistic absurdism mode. Yeah, That's funny. Yeah. He fell into a trap of sort of. Which you know, so many comedians have gone this route, like of just like st- being like wanting to be taken a little more seriously, you know. Yeah. And it kind of like it did not um, gel well with his previous sort of comedic identity. Um, I think the perfect Ricky Gervais anything is um, uh, what's that movie, The Ghost Town, with uh, him and Greg Kinnear and Taylor Leone, where oh, he yeah. plays mm-hmm. this like curmudgeonly dentist who has to like help Ghost Greg Kinnear resolve things with his wife. It's a it's a it's a kind of a prickly movie, but also sweet in the end. And like I think that's like a perfect use of him and then everything kind of past that ugh, I don't know anytime well, he's a romantic fun, lead is a little challenging for me <laughs> what what's funny for me is like the office the british office which is so good and like one of the best qualities of the british office was like this know when to fold them and walk away like ends mm. like after two two seasons and a holiday special and ends and you're just like beautiful way to wrap it up and then Ricky Gervais is like but wait there's more you know what I mean <laughs> I was like that's that's a, for a while I just thought of him as like this really smart guy who like knew that he had made something perfect and then just like cl- folded it all up and gave it to us in a box like and and just and then he like brought that character back and just I just anyway um, the Golden Globes will be fun because you know I'll get to talk about them with you guys and and we'll have a fun time. But I this would not have been my choice. No, I'm glad we'll still make it fun amongst ourselves, even if uh, we're being scolded for trying to have fun while we're watching it. <laughs> Um, well, maybe the Golden Globes are a good way to lead into the other thing I wanted to talk about. Just in terms of, it feels like we know a lot about the season so far. A lot of movies have premiered or at least shown to critics. So there's kind of, you know, buzz about almost everything. But there are still a few X factors, um, which can uh, affect the Golden Globes, I think, as we might discuss, because they nominate early and they can nominate things that the Oscars don't pay attention to and vice versa. Um, but I wanted to kind of run down the list of, like, what are the remaining mysteries of this season? And um, I might just kick off with, like, the biggest and obvious one. I think, as far as I can tell, the Biggest movie that no one has seen is 1917. That that's the biggest question mark, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of scale, certainly, I think there's uh, there's a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions about Richard Jewell, the Clint Eastwood film, as well. But yeah, mm-hmm. 19, 1917 feels like this thing that until not that long ago, I don't think anyone knew it was really even coming out. Like it's been a little bit, it's been under the radar for a Sam Mendes war movie. Um, yeah. But they've been a very technically complicated one. too. Yeah. But they've been steadily ramping things up. And on the Saturday, right before Thanksgiving, they're doing like five or four or five screenings in one day in New York city. I think they're doing the same in LA. Yeah. So they want everyone, all the guild people, everyone to see it. 
um, and control the reaction so it's coming from you know from one one time period. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, I'm excited to see it uh, based on the trailers, which are a little Dunkirky, but that's okay. But I guess the question is, is it going to be a big, satisfying war movie, or is it going to be a big, satisfying war movie that's like Oscar-y? Um, obviously, they're they're going for the latter, but like, you know, much like Midway, which was kind of a hit this past weekend. Which, but doesn't seem like it's going to win Oscars. Maybe it'll just kind of satisfy people who want to see, you know, the boys in trenches and stuff. <laughs> but I think men- Midway is, is boats, right? Not trenches. Well, in planes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like Mendy's is a far cry from Roland Emmerich, right? I mean, everything right. yes. Mendy's has does an Oscar. Will, yeah. will be Oscar y yeah. at some level. Yeah, I mean, Sam Mendes couldn't do Godzilla, but sure, other than that, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yes. Well, and this, and this um, I, you know, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but this, like, um, this one-shot sort of aspect of the film is elevating it in this other way, right? Like, this technical aspect of, of 1917? Yeah. Yes. And also, it's got this ridiculous cast. Like, you've got um, George McKay, who, um, uh, Richard, I think you've had your eye on him for a while, and he was in... Uh, the Truth of the Kelly Gang, and then it's Dean Charles Chapman for Game of Thrones is the other one mm-hmm. with him. Um, but then surrounding them, you got Colin Firth, you got Benedict Cumberbatch, um, Andrew Scott, like all of these like kind of more veteran British actors in supporting roles. Again, kind of Dunkirky. Um, but you know, I love Dunkirk. I wouldn't mind like Dunkirk too. Yeah, my understanding of how the British and Irish governments work is that every male actor over I think seventeen has a card, and and they and, and they're, if their number gets called, they have to go be in a war movie. Doesn't matter <laughs> yeah, how big yeah. the part is. Conscription. <laughs> yeah, they just have to, they have to put on one of the hats and just go and do their thing and then yeah so i just googled world war one movies because there's still there's obviously way more world war two movies yeah yeah right. but some of the greatest movies of all time lawrence of arabia world war one movie paths of glory uh wings you know so um but i kind of always think it's cool to go do a world war one I. I mean it was really the worst freaking war ever well because right? no one knew what to they all kind of marched off thinking this was going to be the, the great war where it was going to be sort of a noble adventure for these you know young yeah. British men who were going to prove themselves you know gentlemen of you know battle or combat and then it was just like complete horror show. right they were expecting yeah. chivalry and they got uh, mechanized mowed down by guns tr- trench warfare yeah which so. is what everyone wants to see on Christmas which is when 1917 <laughs> is opening yeah. well I think I think the interesting thing about this about 1917 which you know other war movies have found in the past is that rather than talking directly about the the huge scope of the thing, they zero in and have it be a little mission movie. You know, it's about these Mm -hmm. two guys trying to get word, you know, across enemy territory to their other people and tell them something, you know, or or much like Saving Private Ryan's about a group of guys trying to find somebody, you know. Um, So in in telling that smaller story, you can gesture toward the bigger things without actually having to show it in all its full, you know, chaos. Well, yeah. I mean, th- these war movies are good for taking your dad to a movie, you know, if you have to do that. So mm-hmm. that, that that can be helpful on the holidays. <laughs> well, should we talk about the other dad movie on the horizon then, which is Richard Jewell, as we uh, <laughs> mentioned before? <laughs> Um, I mean, Clint Eastwood shows up with a movie in December and all of us kind of like snap to attention because he showed up at the last minute with Million Dollar Baby in 2004 and won Best Picture, which was kind of a genuine shocker. Um, it hasn't really worked in the same way. American Sniper came really close. Um, Richard Jewell does seem to have more going for it than, say, like, Hereafter. I think it's got a good cast. It's got a good story behind it. How bullish are you guys feeling on it at this point? I mean, never count out Clint Eastwood's surprise at the end of the year, you know, <laughs> that he, he has a really strong track record of, of you know, completely, uh, you know, s- uh, exceeding expectations. Um, for me, the most exciting thing about this movie, I mean, I'm not, like, necessarily thrilled about 
what appears to be a sort of attack on the media, even if the media did, you know, kind of do Richard Jewell uh, bad a long time ago. Um, but like, uh, is this the presence of Paul Walter Hauser, the lead actor who, you know, has been a character actor for a while, but this is a big lead role. I just like I th- those kind of Oscar narratives are fun. And we are sort of lacking that this year, like a, a sort of out of nowhere, you know, sort of new name on the scene. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that could be really fun. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And see, like comedian, a comedian too, playing mm-hmm. one of these mm-hmm. roles, and he was so like over the top and crazy in Black Klansman, and also I Tanya. So to to hang a movie on a guy like that is definitely gonna be interesting. I agree with you. I'm sort of dreading the ideological aspects of this. Although Clint is like a sly, wily character too. Like he doesn't necessarily. <laughs> I don't think he necessarily hits you over the head with his politics with a two by four. You know what I mean? Like right. These are movies that. You can watch and enjoy. Like American Sniper is sort of a right wing ideological thing, but also not. You know, it's also like a really good movie. Yeah. Um, that you don't have to be like a MAGA to be into. So uh, I don't know. But anyway, it's based on Marie Brenner. I have to say this but contractually. Yeah. Oh, Marie right. Brenner story for Vanity Fair. So go. we got a home team, home team rooting interest. Um, one last December mystery, uh, I guess because they're all December because it's November now, um, but uh, word broke last week that Cats will not screen for critics in time for most critics awards, including the New York Film <laughs> Critics Circle. Uh, Richard, I know, you, I know you hand wrote them letters asking them to screen it in time for you to vote for <laughs> awards. Um, I'm sorry that campaign didn't work out. Well, I mean, I hand wrote the letters as much as I hand wrote the script. So, like, I mean, I, like, <laughs> I'm involved mean, you in have to campaign things. for your movie. Yeah, three, six, Was it just, like, was it just paw prints on some nice <laughs> yeah, stationery? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, so you exactly. said, okay. Um, I'm not surprised that it's not screening for critics before the uh, before the votes because those are early December and the, you know that's basically a month three weeks before the movie comes out so that's okay I you know um, but like I wanted to screen before Christmas Day I mean that would be nice but we'll see yeah I'm actually I got my regional screening invitation already which surprised me excuse usually me <laughs> I know if you would like to fly down and see cats with me on December seventeenth oh um, that or eighteenth or whenever that is um, yeah it's screening well you no know, before Christmas Day but not all that early but I, I'm still kind of wanting to put down my chips and just say this is going to be a greatest showman kind of thing where all of us sleep on it and then by mid-January it's made $200 million. Sure could. Uh, I mean, I I think it's going to make a ton of money if I'm being honest with you because like there's the people who are genuinely excited. They exist. And then there's all the people who are going to rubberneck it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is what happened with Greatest Showman. Like we were all kind of like, oh my God, the circus musical. And then like (laughs) six months later we were like, oh, the circus musical. I love that song. Man, I didn't get invited to Cats. What's going on in your neck of the woods, Katie? <laughs> oh, maybe this is secretly the birthplace of Cats. But don't, but don't you feel like they need to release a less embarrassing trailer soon? Yeah. Wouldn't is that there be helpful? One, is it, one's coming this week. Aren't oh, they doing right. Anyone there this is going to be a new trailer okay. this week. All right. But I think that the, the, we, we, when, when, when the first teaser came out, we spoke about this. I think the issue with how they do that is that like a lot of the other songs in Cats that aren't memory are like really goofy. Yeah. And they don't have that big, like, you know, this is us from Greatest Showman kind of like contemporary anthemic kind of quality to them, which, you know, can sell a movie as it did Greatest Showman to, to really, you know, powerful effect. Um, with Cats, it's it's a lot of like, I'm Uncle Jerry and I do, you know, yeah. it's like very yeah. silly. The rum chum yeah. tugger. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see. How dare you? Skim- Skimble Shanks, I think, could sell this movie. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. Well, they're right. The, so uh, you think they're saving up memory. They're eventually going to do a memory trailer. Well, but, but, but it kind of plays a little bit through the teaser, you right. know, and, 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 and makes it cats seem like it's this big, sweeping, emotional sort of thing. That song is, but the rest of the show is, is kind of, it's, it's kind of kitty and cute. The problem is that somehow, bizarrely, um, 
the musical was kind of cool in this like super druggy 70s way. <laughs> right. And it just was didn't feel cool, the teaser trailer. It was <laughs> not cool. No, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love Cats. And I was like, uh, I've been really worried about the look of Cats, but I love the music of Cats unabashedly. I will not apologize. Yeah, I'm with you, Joanna. Like, I saw it in, on Broadway cat. as a kid and had the freaking yes. vinyl, you know, London recording. Like, it's it's weird and sort of bad, but good. I had that dumb shirt where the pupils of the cat eyes are the dancers. We have talked about um, that shirt on the show already. <laughs> I'll talk about it more. I don't care. But uh, so, like, you know, if anyone should be like in the can for cats, it's me. But gosh, the trailer. That digital fur like, technology. It, it, I mean, it, it also seems like they're trying to give it more of a plot. You know, when Cats is like this weird impressionistic, like there's there's kind of a plot, but not really. It's just like the cats, some cats come out and do a dance and a song and then it's the next one. Uh, but they're trying to give it like a plot with this like young uh, cat, female cat character, like really going through a thing. And I'm like, I, I just... Who, what is happening? Right? I know. <laughs> you want to be reminded, actually, again, I don't know. What do I know? But like you want to be reminded that it's a bunch of weird T.S. Eliot poems that mm-hmm. he wrote for yeah. laughs on the side of writing like The Wasteland and stuff, not try and turn it into, I don't know. I'm just well, worried about it, it it's obviously. A, it's a funny I mean, thing. I don't really care. But <laughs> This doesn't exactly 100% relate, but like I just recently reviewed the new Disney Plus show, High School Musical, the musical, the series. And <laughs> it's, it's about the it's about kids at a school... I mean, it's a it's a yes. scripted series doing a production of the 2006 Disney Channel television movie that was a big hit and spawned two, two sequels, and that's fine. Like whatever, it's 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 a funny, cute little mockumentary kind of thing. But in order to even update it, just the 13 years later since the original premiered, they at least in the first episode they add in this very serious Greatest Showman esque poppy ballad that doesn't fit at all with the very sort of thin flimsy tinny music of the original high school musical and i just think that like these efforts to just sort of quick inject an older property with something that feels more contemporary it doesn't always work because it, it's not it a lot of times you can really feel the seams in that you know yeah um and so i'm just curious like with cats like because i there are there are new songs in it like what that how that's going to translate to the rest of the show and what's going to get cut out of the original and and thus alienating old fans but trying to win new fans i don't know i just feel like it could be this weird frankenstein thing beyond the digital effects that might not please anyone yeah, well, like, it seems like the impulse was like, we got to make this thing appeal to middle America and probably, frankly, globally because we're going to spend so much money on it versus let's make something cool that's like that's true to the spirit of cats. Like right. no one actually would have said right. that in, in the in, involved in it, sadly. <laughs> Mike and I would make that movie. I know, well, no, you should, and like I that. should do this, low-budget cats. <laughs> I would love it, but let's just get actual cats. Um, no, like <laughs> the... Um, I feel like when the you Jungle see Book. That- <laughs> When you see an adaptation of something and you're like that, no matter how like to the letter of the source material it is, you understand that that filmmaker, that whatever, that playwright has gotten what was like magical about the original text. And you see whatever they're doing with this cast movie. You're like, oh, you do not get it at all. And I'm sorry that it was leg warmers, but it was leg warmers. And don't shy away from that. Like, that's what it is. So I don't know. Uh, Justice for cats. More leg warmers. More leg warmers, please. <laughs> Less giant furniture. <laughs> um, all right. What, any, what other burning questions do you guys have in mind? Or what do you feel like you still don't know where it's going to fit into things? 
I mean, Katie, when you sent us notes earlier, you wrote down my nightmare, obviously, which is that Taryn Edgerton wouldn't even get nominated for a Golden Globe. And I said, <laughs> in my heart, I said, how ding, dare ding, you? Ding. And then Ricky Gervais showed up and everything fell apart. We need a, t- a Taryn Edgerton bell or sound effect or something. Like a- <laughs> Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that the, the Paramount did a good enough job of, like, reminding LA that that movie existed in the past couple of weeks that like yeah. that he should He's be okay that. especially given that the HFPA you know would seem to favor a movie and a performance like that um but you know what's crazy and this sounds so like weird and niche but like I don't have a screener of it yet and I believe the movie's on Blu-ray like I, I don't know if other people do I don't think so like that seems like the easiest thing in the world to put in every single house yeah. and they haven't done it yet which well, is strange in, in general the screener you know, Hall this year has been very thin. Um, I think a lot of studios are maybe kind of moving digitally or just rethinking the whole enterprise. But like, yeah, normally this time of year, right before Thanksgiving, like there's like a bounty and I have like a little tiny stack. So maybe they're coming later. But you're right, Katie, that like as much as I might see, you know, on because of certain people I follow on Twitter, like, you know, gushing photos of Taron Edgerton at some, you know, event at the Hollywood Bowl or wherever it was or the Greek. Um you know, a lot of a lot of people aren't seeing that, and they need the physical copy in their hands. You know, uh, in order to consider the movie. Yeah, I, I need it sitting on my uh, like TV console to remember to write it. Although I did, like, I would happily rewatch Rocketman any minute. <laughs> but I, I just need, all I need out of this award season is that for as soon as Taron Edgerton wins his Golden Globe for Rocketman, for you to all immediately think of me. That's all I want. <laughs> I want his glory to reflect back on me. That's important to me. Thank you. <laughs> I saw recently a list of which films are going into which category at the Golden Globes, and there's some weird comedy competition. Like, it's not... Oh, no. And this happens every year, right? Where, like, the person who's, like, giving the real musical comedy performance is competing against, like, I don't think Joker's going comedy. Let's see. So, okay, so the musical comedy category is going to include Dolomite Is My Name, so Eddie Murphy is real competition there. Uh, It's going to include Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is, like, the real crazy one to me. Um, Uh, And Uncut Gems, which is, like, not a comedy in any way. Um, And also Yesterday, which seems like a very charming inclusion. But, yeah, like, the competition for Taron Edgerton in that category is going to be kind of intense. Are people talking about Dolomite? This is my question. Like, when it hits Netflix... Are people going to be talking about it? And I know that Eddie Murphy is campaigning and Netflix is doing a great job platforming that film, but like, are people talking about it? Well, it's on Netflix. It's on, yeah. No, I know, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I was waiting for it to hit and then it hit and then it didn't like become a bigger part of the conversation in the way that I was anticipating it might. I anecdotally, I've just spoken to a lot of people who like have like just checked it out, you know regardless of awardsy whatever they just wanted to see this new eddie murphy that was just popped up on netflix and like everyone seems to enjoy it you know i just hear a lot of yeah it's solid like he's fun it's fun you know um yeah i liked it i liked it fine yeah that's what i'm hearing so yeah, I, yeah. I think mm. it's i think it will just have to be how they i mean the, the problem is is that netflix has a lot of resources but they don't have infinite resources and they are going hard for Marriage Story with the Marriage Story experience that's like in New York right now or was in New York which is sort of an art show Wait, kind what? of what? Yeah, yeah. I got an email that said you're invited to the Marriage Story experience and I was like so am I going to get divorced? <laughs> like what's that? I'm not even married. I know. Which, um, which one of you is going to move cross country? But, uh, but yeah so there's like some like I don't know if it's like a road show or whatever maybe it's going to New York and LA but like it's like art inspired by the movie all this stuff. So they're doing things like that. They have obviously Irishman stuff to do and then uh, you know then there's a campaign for Eddie Murphy so you you know how many like 
people are they going to be able to devote to that campaign versus De Niro's versus Drivers? You know, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, I think that's like the big question for me right now. I don't think that there's any way any doubt that he could that Eddie Murphy could get you know that kind of attention um, based on the quality of that movie. Uh, it's just a matter of if he gets pushed into the right you know rooms and and into the right homes basically. Well, and I think we saw at the Emmys that this is a problem for Netflix that when they get stretched thin. Yeah, they you know other people can kind of beat them because they just have one film or one right, one they... person to to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and last year they really had Roma, like they had their one horse that they rode a, a really long way, um, and they've kind of spread their efforts more this time. Yeah, yeah. To have Adam Driver and Eddie Murphy basically and know, Robert De Niro and De Niro all against each other is not probably ideal. Yeah. Well, and that brings up my like one of my big questions for my beloved two popes, which I kind of keep being like everybody wait for it, like wait till people start seeing two popes. But I'm starting to wonder if it's getting too late for that momentum to build. I don't think it's on Netflix yet, so there's still time. But uh, again, like I, I wonder if they have the bandwidth to give that the push that I think if I think with a real push, it could be a huge contender. The big question for me about this whole Netflix season, because like Marriage Story, like uh, you know Adam Driver seems like locked and done up to me anyway yeah like you know but like the big question mark for me is like what is going to happen when irishman hits because roma being their big film last year i think we all agree that like while roma was a very like impressive achievement a great filmmaker a good story like all this sort of stuff it's not a movie that i would you know expect a lot of people to sit down and watch because it's a bit of a tough sit. It's black and white. It's long, et cetera. It's in a different language, blah, blah. But the Irishman, like this is a Scorsese film that like in theory, if it were, you know, theatrical only could have been a big box office contender the way that once upon a time in Hollywood was for Tarantino, maybe, but like, is it going to land in a, this is going to be like a real testing ground. I think for like, are people going to watch this movie at home? Is it going to feel like a big moment for Scorsese when this hits Netflix at home. I don't know. For, I mean, actually, I think that their strategy in New York, at least, is working pretty well. A lot of people are talking about the fact that Irishman is in theaters for a brief time and basically saying, like, you got to find your way to see it. And so I think it's getting that discussion that I think something like Dolomite misses out on, where it's like the movie's in the theaters. People are kind of like, it, it's a little hard to get to, so there's something to talk about. Like, have you seen it yet? Whereas, the you know, just firing up the, your your streaming box is like there's no friction there. Um, and then, and then the other thing that they can do, which they did clearly with Roma, is feature it, put it in the trending thing, like keep it in there for weeks and weeks so that every time you open Netflix, you see it and never tell anybody what the view counts are. Like they are, they they did this last year. We saw them what they did. So presumably they just do that again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But Dolomite, I think, is getting more lost in the kind of like, oh, the king and Dolomite and like, you know, all these kind of random shows that pop up on my Netflix every 10 seconds. It seems more in that mix where I assume the Irishman, they're not going to they're not going to put it there because because the Irishman is their best picture not you know right. chance. Yeah, I don't think Marriage Story is a real best picture chance. No, that's acting um, and writing. Yeah. yeah, that. But like, but like the Irishman, like they're gonna they're gonna go Roma on it. Well, but the problem is, uh, you know, and this is some this is fortuitous that we're talking about today. The launch of Disney Plus is like the eyeballs on Netflix has stiffer competition this year than any other year. 
maybe not from Apple Plus, but from Disney Plus, you know, because that's all anyone's talking about today. And I think for a while, there's just so much to watch on Disney Plus that like, you know, if you've if you've bought into Disney Plus, maybe you won't be idly clicking around Netflix the way that you did last year at this time, you might be exploring Disney Plus instead. And so will that, you know, just just take the some air out of the conversation well, around this. Can stuff. I also to be like a not to be too Tom Friedman here? Um, it wasn't a driver, but I was at the barber shop <laughs> yesterday, and there was a big conversation about Disney Plus and all this other stuff. And um, somebody was talking about the King. And they were like, uh, so what'd you think? I mean, is it good? And this and this woman was like, Yeah, I mean, it's pretty it's good. It's good. And the guy goes, Good enough for streaming? And she goes, Yeah, good enough for streaming. Oh, and and yeah. I hadn't heard that before, yeah. but like mm-hmm. I feel like da- Netflix is really in danger of that sort of a vibe. Yeah. Where it's like, Yeah, mm-hmm. all right, I'll pay six ninety nine. There's a bunch of shit here that's like better than staring at a wall, but like but like it's not really high quality films that are made. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and so and so I do think that's a little bit of a danger for them. But I also think that the, while that is certainly true that there is stuff that just feels good enough for streaming, I think something like The King, which is you know a solid movie, it does get that little uptick of grandeur when you see it. Like I saw it on a big screen at Venice, you know. So like it felt right. it felt more like it had more consequence. So I think it's not only the actual quality of the movie it's the experience of it it's how it's sort of like served to you at home you know um and i but i don't know i i think that with something as i think the irishman checks a lot of different boxes if it was just a new scorsese movie that would you know so was silence and you know and no one's right. but this is a scorsese movie and a mob movie and it has this pe- these people in it you know and it's yeah. i think in a weird way the length is sort of enticing because it's like it's meaty and it's exciting it's it's as, you know, it brings up the movie experience closer to like the binging of a series experience, you know, in terms oh, of yeah. time. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, but if you talk about the movie that you got to take your dad to because you're hanging out with your dad at the holidays, like instead of 1917, it, 17, it could have been The Irishman, and I don't think it will be. I mean, I don't I like. I don't want to rain on Netflix parade. I like Netflix a lot. I I love the Marriage Story so much, and uh, they've got a lot of great stuff going on. I'm just like, I'm I'm curious, I'm curious. Yeah. Like you know about these conversations. By the way, I have been um, mainlining the um, the company soundtrack. Ever. Oh. <laughs> yes. It's my favorite musical, no. Mike Hogan. Did you know that? Is it really? Did you guys know that this is a musicals podcast now? Joanne yeah. and I are going to peel off and start a musicals podcast. <laughs> it's all I want. What's funny is that, uh, you know, well, I talked to Ryan Johnson about, uh, and you will hear it on this podcast, I talked to him about musicals. You guys, I don't think I've done an interview for Little Goldman yet that I haven't turned into a conversation about musicals. So <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you should be hosting the Golden Globes. Oh my god! Oh, yeah, <laughs> nobody wants that. <laughs> <laughs> um, something else that I'm wondering about, uh, and less about whether or not Little Women is good, because I know enough people who have seen it who love it, um, and I myself haven't seen it, which is a crime. But I have no one to blame but myself. Um, Richard, you're among the people who've seen it, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on it in general, and also. I've heard kind of a lot of varying predictions on how it will play with audiences, how big this movie will be. Do you have a sense of what that will be and how much it might matter for its awards prospects? Um, well, when I saw it, which was in Los Angeles, uh, it was a screening for the uh, for SAG, for the Actors Guild. Uh, so, And Greta was there, Meryl Streep was there, Saoirse was there, Florence Pugh was there. It was a very receptive audience. And it was like maybe the second public-ish audience to see the movie. So they were effusive about it. 
I think it will hit certain pressure points for enough people that will it will be a solid success. I think that the one concern I have about the movie, and it's still something I'm wrestling with, I want to see it again before I really write about it, is how much of it feels supplemental to the experience of having read the book and how mm. much it, how much it stands on its own as its own contained, discrete movie that tells a story. And I don't really know. Um, partly because I had just listened to you and Radhika and everyone talk about Little Women on this podcast, and I haven't read the book in a long time, but I'm familiar with the story and the other movies, and so I'm just—I'll be curious to see what, like, you know, just imagining like a younger viewer who's drawn to the movie by the presence of, oh, it's her from Midsommar and it's Timmy Chalamet, and I want to see that movie, but they're not familiar with the source material. I wonder what they'll take from the from the film, and that's—that's uh, that's the big question. I'll be curious to see answered. Although if you've seen Friends, which all generations of people have done, they uh, they spoil the big death in Little Women in an episode of Friends. So that's that's the most of the primer that people need, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, probably yes. <laughs> but with it with it coming out at Christmas, like Opposite Cats and 1917 and all the stuff we're talking about, it does seem like something that if it really hits with audiences in that window, which is in- insanely crowded. Um, but you know, if it goes into early January with this huge head of steam and people loving it, that does seem like it could be a big boost. Also because we're looking at a really male Best Picture lineup right now, and there could be a good corrective to that. Oh, fully. I don't doubt that there will be tens of thousands of families across the you know North America going to see that movie on Christmas Day or some you know time there shortly after like it's a perfect kind of movie for that it's warming it's sweet it's sad it's romantic it it has t- tons of actors you know and like and new ones that are exciting and you know um it it, it checks many many boxes much like Irishman does and i think that there is a cool factor to it which Sounds strange because it's, you know, it's pretty certainly monochromatic in terms of its cast. It's an old story. It's a studio film. But, you know, just given who's involved, like it has a sort of, I think, you know, single people in the city who aren't home for Christmas are going to see it too, you know. And I think that that's that's a good sign for it if you want to think of it as counter-programming. Can I uh, offer you a dispatch from um, the heartland of the Bay Area, California, which is um, I haven't seen Little Women yet, but I was talking to someone about how excited I was for it. And they're like, oh, really? Who's in that? And I told them all the people in it and they hadn't heard of anyone but Laura Dern and Meryl Streep. And I had a real moment. It wasn't even (laughs) like a person who doesn't go to the movies. I had a real moment that like people don't know who Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet are. And that's true. But are you so excited for this person to finally see Lady Bird and have their lives changed? Maybe, but like maybe they'll never see Lady Bird. And if you weren't, uh, you know, maybe at the point, you know, at this point, if you weren't in Stranger Things or a Marvel movie, like the whole country doesn't know who you are. I don't know. Oh God! (laughs) But they know who Meryl Streep and Laura Dern are. So yes. Well, Jurassic Park and Devil Wears Prada. So there's that. Um, okay, before we get into Richard's interview with uh, Tracy Letts, Ford vs. Ferrari is out this weekend, so we should talk a little bit about it. Um, I'd been kind of eyeing that as yet another dad movie that felt like it could really dominate the holidays. It's coming out before Thanksgiving. Um, my dad's not especially a car person, but it's something I could see him enjoying. Um, I'm not totally sure this movie is for me, and Richard, I think you might have felt similarly, but it does have great performances among them, Tracy Letts. Um, what do you think people should be looking for from Ford vs. Ferrari, Richard? Vroom, vroom, go fast. I mean, right? That's that, that's appealing. Um, something I really uh, actually admire about the movie is that it's it could easily have been a very jingoistic Americans versus like fruity Europeans, like blah, blah, blah. There's a little of that in there, but it's mostly not that. Um, so that's that's good if, you're, if people are nervous about that aspect of it. Um, 
I, I would say that you have to care at least a little bit about a car racing to, to fully enjoy it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's bright colors, it's big stars, it's sort of snappy dialogue. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's it's solid, you know. It I feel like yeah. most people, if if you know, let's in you know again, we're, this sort of holiday scenario. If you take your family to see it, and it's a mixed group of people, I think most people will leave being like, yeah, you know, like there was something in there for me. Yeah, I saw Honey Boy after I saw this movie and um, was kind of dazzled by Noah Jupes. Too, he's um you know twelve years old maybe, um and is in both movies. Uh, He's in Ford vs. Ferrari using his natural British accent, which is mind-boggling when you then see him in Honey Boy, like, playing the most uh, effortless American. Um, he's incredible. Like, I think Matt Damon and uh, Christian Bale have great performances in this, too. Tracy Letts has mentioned. But I feel like if you see this, uh, really walk away paying attention to that kid. Yeah, I mean, although... Oh, like, A Quiet Place. Yeah, That's where quiet He is in A Quiet Place. I, I mean, the thing about Noah Jupe also, though, like, is he was recently on Ellen. I think it was his first talk show. And he had, like, this, like, cool outfit on and this, like, single earring. I don't like... 14 year olds to be cooler than me that's not really I mean I know that I'm, I'm a little too old to be cool not anyway okay. but um, I, I should say though I, I, I know I sound a little tepid on, on Ford for Fries it's a very well made movie it's entertaining like I, I shouldn't I don't want to poo poo it just before we go into in, an interview with Tracy Letts but um, I think that I can understand where, where some people are wary of it um, but like you know uh, it really like you said Katie was not for me and yet I, um, I, I enjoy you know I was entertained yeah, I think that's exactly like I like don't understand the stakes of car racing, especially the race at the center of this movie, which is 24 hours long, which I don't understand at all. Um, but it's got that kind of like old Hollywood, like watching beautiful people wear great sunglasses and stand on a racetrack appeal to it. It kind of it drags you in even if you don't expect to. The sunglasses are amazing. Yes. Sunglasses. Yeah, the sunglasses, <laughs> even in the uh, billboards, the, yeah. you know, when I was in L.A., I was like, those are really good sunglasses <laughs> and pretty good, like, whatever you want to call it, collared shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Tracy Letts is also, you know, part of the frame narrative in Little Women. So this is a... Right, uh, right. Season of Tracy. Yeah, is there anything yeah, right. anything we should say about Tracy Letts before you get into your interview, Richard? Uh, yeah, he plays Henry Ford III or Henry Ford Jr., I want to say, the grandson of the you know the inventor of the Model T. Uh, where Ford finds itself at a, at a point where it's just not a cool car company. No, you know, it's not the, the sexy car that young people want to drive. And they say, okay, well, how can we change that? Uh, so they, you know, they enter, they they build a race car to enter Le Mans, Le Mans uh, in France. So yeah, Let's is kind of the the benefactor of of the operation. He gets to be stern and you know lecturing to his underlings, but also there's a great scene where he is taken out in the race car to experience what it feels like. And so it's kind of this moment of like slapstick comedy for Tracy Letts, which we don't normally get from him. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talked about that. We talked about his incredible theater career. He has two shows opening in New York. One is already open. One is coming up. Um, So that's kind of, that's a real coup for him. So yeah, he's a very genial, nice guy. As he said in the interview, people think he's this kind of like stern, scary guy. But when you actually meet him, he's a teddy bear. So that was a nice surprise. Well, let's listen to your interview with Tracy Letts. Well, I have the distinct pleasure of sitting across the table today with actor, playwright, Tracy Letts, uh, who is so terrific in Ford vs. Ferrari. Tracy, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you've got a lot going on right now because you have movies coming out. You have a play that just opened in New York. Are, how are you able to juggle all of those things, or, or are you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, one, one day at a time. Uh, my wife and I sit down and try and map out 
uh, where we're going and when we're going there, and it's like planning the Battle of Midway. It's, uh, <laughs> but it's a it's also a great time. I it would be churlish to complain about all the good stuff we're doing. So I won't. Good. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so tell me about Ford Ferrari because uh, I'm just curious about how this came to you. I mean, did did they say, "Hey, do you want to play Henry Ford," uh, or or how did that process work? I was originally going to do. Uh, Mr. Mangold was making a, a movie about Patty Hearst, mm. and he had contacted me about playing a role in that. And uh, then he, and then they decided not to make Patty Hearst. I'm not entirely sure the reasons. But I think Patty Hearst getting pissed off about it had a lot to do with it. Sure. Uh, uh, in any case, they decided not to make Patty Hearst. And, and so uh, just a few months later, Mr. Mangold contacted me about doing uh, this film and sent me the script and uh, written by uh, Jez Butterworth and his brother and also Jim and another guy. This script has been around for a long time. It's been kicking around for a long time. Uh, and I, I just thought the script was great. I mean, it's a... It touches all of the oh, it hits all the points that a that a sports film often hits. But uh, what appealed to me about it was that it was uh, it was a human story. It was about people. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was entertaining on the page, and it was about this hidden history. I, I mean, the that it's a based on a true story, and that it's a, a true story I did not know and that I, I found kind of compelling. Also, I get asked to do a lot of uh, guys in suits, guys, mm -hmm. the man behind the desk, all that stuff. I get asked to do that a lot, and so there's got to be something there to make me want to do, to make me want to do it, something a little more interesting about it. And for me, the idea that the story kind of hinged on Henry Ford's insecurity, that that was not only in the screenplay, but in real life, I guess, the, the reason that the Ford Motor Company decided to go take on Ferrari at Le Mans was uh, that Henry Ford got his feelings hurt. And yeah. that was uh, a fun bit of history, but also a, a fun thing to play. Yeah. For me, um, there are two really like major moments for Henry Ford in the movie. One is your, I think it's your introductory scene where you're addressing the, the people on the factory floor from up from on high. Um, when you've shot that, were there that many people assembled or did they kind of do that in post? I'm just curious about like the filming of that very towering sort of, you know, scene. There were that many people yeah. assembled. You know, the one of the things I, I love about the movie is that it's, there's not a lot of CGI. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, Jim decided to make a, <laughs> to make this movie analog and I'm glad he did. I mean, the cars are real cars, right? They're not animated cars out on the track. They're right. real cars speeding around. Uh, same thing with the factory. They took over this enormous warehouse in Los Angeles. Now, I do think there's, there is, in fact, in, in those scenes, a little CGI to give the impression that there's more depth mm -hmm. to the factory floor mm -hmm. than there actually is. But no, all those guys were really there. It was a huge shot. It's the kind of thing, you know, to get those individual parts that you see them working on as they're on the assembly line, that's years of planning. So you go onto a set like that and uh, the, the construction of, of this whole thing was so long in the planning, uh, how, how one orchestrates all that is completely beyond me. But yeah, that's, we shot that scene in that warehouse and there were a lot of people there and it was a... It was a, it was a high pressure, high pressure day. <laughs> Do you find that the enormity of all that does that help 
coax something out of your performance? Or, um, I mean, how do you make, because I've talked to some actors who mostly work in independent film or in the theater, and they've said, I don't, those big budget things, it's too overwhelming. How did you, how do you find it? Oh, you know, it increases your uh, performance anxiety, so so it increases your adrenaline. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a f- funny story going around about, uh, and I think it was a Matt Damon story about an actor he'd worked with who had a big bombastic scene, and he blew his voice out in the rehearsal Uh-oh. for the scene and then had to shoot the scene and had no voice. We, he had told this story. We had all laughed about the story, and then I went out and <laughs> I did the exact oh, no. same thing in the adrenalized moment wanting to show Mr. Mangold what I had. I went out and really blew it out. Uh, in the rehearsal, and then we had to shoot it. And I told him, he said, you, the voice is impressive. And I said, well, I've got about 12 of those, or no. I said, I've got nine more of those in me. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm going to ask you to do it about 12 more times. Turns out we did it about 18 more times. But, oh, wow. again, a little theater training goes a long way, too. <laughs> sure, projection and, <laughs> right, and whatnot. Right, stuff. Uh, and then you also have, I mean, there are lots of great moments for Henry throughout the film, but you, uh, you know, I think it's in the trailer when, when you finally get in one of those cars and, 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 you know, he takes you out and, and just to show you the sheer sort of power of that, what was filming that like, were you actually, I mean, how, how did that work in terms of the, the mechanics of being in a race car and then filming a reaction to that high speed? Yeah, I was in a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were, uh, attached to something called a biscuit, which is a camera car. Uh, meaning it's a it's a vehicle that is actually, uh, in a sense, towing that vehicle that Matt and I are in. Uh, uh, Jim was under the impression it was called a biscuit because it's a pod-shaped thing, almost looks like a biscuit. Mm-hmm. But uh, unfortunately, I corrected Jim in a Q&A <laughs> because Matt had told me in the car the reason it's called a biscuit is because it was first used on the movie Sea Biscuit. It was oh. a camera mount that allowed the horse to run with other horses. It could mm-hmm. actually get up to those speeds. So the, what's innovative about it is that it can go at very high speeds at the same time that you're in a lockdown vehicle with cameras attached to it. So, yeah, we were we were actually in a car and we were doing speeds uh, about 100 miles an hour out on the tarmac outside of this uh, – on this airport tarmac in Ontario, California. Uh, I mean, I think it's similar to the factory floor in that Jim tries to provide the actor with uh, enough of the real circumstances that, uh, you know, so I'm not reacting to a tennis ball or, uh, mm-hmm. you know – against a green screen but we're actually in some of the there is some sense of the environment so the speed was great and uh i think that the the when the car stops jim told me that that's the first take that we shot though we shot it all day but that's basically the first take he used because he wanted to provide me with all of the uh underpinning uh to be in the adrenalized emotional point i'm at in that scene the speeds weren't scary. The claustrophobia was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, those cars are very small. They're, made, they're not made for big guys. I'm a big guy. I, I couldn't extend my legs in the car. I'm in a full you know, suit and mm-hmm. hair and makeup and all the rest. I can't open the door because there's a camera attached to it. The roof of the car is about six inches over my head. Uh, 
and then Matt is on the side. And I mean, there's you're you know, I've got a seat belt on. You are really kind of strapped in. Like, well, now you're in there for hours, and it was it was a scary. That part was scary for me. Well, that discomfort for you, unfortunately it reads so well uh, on screen because there's a physical comedy to it because you're like, this guy is stuffing himself into this thing that he's, you know, paying for it to be made and yet he does it, he barely fits in his own product, you know. Well, something I also really appreciate about about the movie, you mentioned that there's, you know, the sort of human emotional component and and part of that, it's maybe less of a serious emotion, but the way that Henry Ford is depicted in the film, I'm thinking about um, how he takes the helicopter away to go get dinner and doesn't stay for some of the laps and then the, the Ferrari guy's there, you know, you know, I think it's interesting that a movie that could, in, in other hands, other writers, other directors, other performers, kind of read a little jingoistic, you know, rah, rah. But, like, they're criticizing this scion of an American icon, in a sense. Um, d- was that something that you sort of saw in the script and said, you know, found, you know, interesting about it? Or Yeah, no, it's part of the complexity of the yeah. piece, right? The The idea that, in a sense, Shelby and Miles are... We're we're supposed to think of them as underdogs. They're working for the Ford Mot- Motor Company, right? There's nothing. There's no uh, Ford Motor Company's never been an underdog in anything. Yeah. So the truth is, I I think that Jim feels this way. We never talked about it, but I I think he felt in some way that uh, their experience was analogous to a filmmaker trying to get a movie made, right? That y- you have to cooperate uh, with. Uh, the suits and the money people and the uh, the the corporate structure. If you're going to make a Hollywood film, if you're especially a big budget Hollywood film, in order to get your film made, but the people making the film, you know, they're they are the underdogs because mm-hmm. they're artists. And I think I think for Jim that was part of the appeal of this story. Again, like I say, he never said that. You know, but I, one of the things I really admire about Jim is he has a real uh, ethos about. Uh, entertaining work. I mean, Jim makes no bones about the fact that he's trying to make entertaining films. I don't think he panders. I don't think he's thinking of lowest common denominator. I think he's just trying to make work that is entertaining. And in fact, when I've talked to Jim about, uh, I don't know, some more obscure stuff that I like and enjoy, it's not that he's dismissive of that necessarily. It's just clearly that's not where his interest as an artist is. Uh, which uh, is great. I, I think that uh, I think we really benefit from artists like Jim out there making that kind of work. Well, especially at a time when um, you know there's a lot of talk about the kind of erosion of that mid-budget for grown-up studio movie, you know, yeah. and because there aren't that many of them made, it's either tiny, either indies or horror films or genre things, or it's Marvel, you know, and so Ford vs Ferrari is is very comfortably situated between those poles and. That's part of the excitement of watching it. I think from from like my sort of you know nerdy industry perspective, it's like, wow, this is like a good robust studio right. movie with, that also has like awards kind of quality to it. Like right. it's everything. Um, and yeah, those are rare. I, I, you know, I think that uh, somebody at some point, I don't know if it was one of the uh, Fox people or I, I'm not sure who, but somebody said to Jim at some point, "Well, enjoy it because you're." <laughs> You'll never make another one like it. This is the last. Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> but you, you know, you've, you've worked on uh, an upcoming kind of big thing in The Woman in the Window, right? Like yeah. that, you know, as a screenplay writer, um, I feel like that probably exists in, in a similar space. I mean, it's Joe Wright directing, who's an artful filmmaker, but also makes 
you know, darkest hours, stuff that's 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 right. appealing. Right. Um, what's the challenge of trying to write that script to fit that kind of idea of of the smart studio movie? Well, that is the challenge. It's mm-hmm. it's the challenge of trying to make something that is a smart studio movie that doesn't look uh, cookie cutter. That doesn't look like uh, something you could watch on NBC on a Friday night, right? Mm-hmm. That looks like uh, looks like a movie. Walks and talks like a movie, and that's the challenge. I think we did it. Who knows? They've <laughs> they uh, they've they they they've done some rewrites and some reshoots since I worked on it. So I don't know what it looks like now. Well, your next thing after Ford Ferrari is another film with Greta Gerwig, Little yeah. Women. Um, was that conversation just like you know you had a good time working with her on, on um, Lady Bird, and she had a scene for you, or like uh, how did how did that project come about? We became friends uh, working on Lady Bird. Uh, she's, uh, we, we actually met, uh, we're in a film, uh, uh, Todd Salon's movie called Wiener Dog. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And uh, we didn't, you know, because it's in vignettes, we never mm-hmm. actually worked together. But we met at Sundance mm-hmm. at the premiere of the film. And uh, I think uh, she met me and my wife at the at the after party for Wiener Dog. And she told me later, she, she said, I... I guess I had an impression about the kind of guy you were, and then I met you and realized you were an old softy, and that's why she thought of me for the dad in Lady Bird. I'm so glad she did. It was a great experience. But uh, we became friends, and then, you know, she had originally written uh, Little Women as a... uh, She was just the writer. She was not the director. Mm -hmm. But then uh, they had asked her to do the adaptation, and she had done it. And then when Lady Bird hit, I think they turned to her and said... how how would you feel about directing this? And Greta smartly jumped on it. And she sent me the screenplay around that time just to read as a as a reader or as a friend or see if I had any comments. And it was such a fantastic screenplay. I, I just marveled at the job of adaptation she had done. She's got such a great mind and uh, it's really brilliant stuff. And so I... I think she was looking for notes. I didn't have any notes for Greta. I was like, can I get some notes from you? <laughs> uh, and then when it found its way into production uh, shortly thereafter, yeah, she asked me to play a part, and it's not a big part. If you've seen the trailer, you've seen most of what I do on <laughs> okay. film. Yeah. So it's not a big part. I shot it in just a, a, a couple of days. Uh, but I could tell, even being on the set for just those couple of days, it's like this is going to be really something it's going to be really superb does it make a difference to work with a director who's also the writer do you feel like they have a certain more command of the material than well you feel better when they make changes on the fly right when they're when they're making changes on the fly and they're not the writer you as a playwright i feel a little guilty about that it's like oh well are we not even gonna consult with a writer (laughs) about this change you're making so yeah that's that part helps but I think it probably does help just in terms of an overall vision. But, you know, the really good ones, they've got it worked out already. Uh, I mean, not that there isn't room for improvisation on the set uh, to change your mind about the way you're going to shoot something. And both Greta and Jim do that. But at the same time, they they know what they're doing. I mean, uh, Lady Bird was on the page. It was on the page. You read the screenplay and said, I can see this movie. And the movie she shot is the movie she wrote. I think it's true with Ford v. Ferrari, too. They they had that stuff worked out. I mean, with a movie like Ford v. Ferrari, truly the planning for that was 
years in the making. That racetrack uh, at Le Mans, well, it's not really a racetrack. It's just a road mm -hmm. that they used to race on, Le Mans. Uh, the straightaway is filmed in Agua Dulce. The, the, the big left-hand turn is somewhere in Georgia. The other left-hand turn is somewhere else in Georgia. Oh, uh, Jim, Jim's having to keep all of that in mind when he's shooting that. And the, then, of course, there's night shooting. There's shooting in the rain. There's yeah. <laughs> a lot of stuff to consider. I, I, I truly don't know how somebody gets their mind around all of that. And then... It's not as if that's his only skill. He's also just so great with actors, and he's uh, really specific. He can be really technical. He knows exactly what he needs. My first night shooting on the film, Jim was, you know, he's, uh, unlike Greta, Jim, he's loud. He's, he curses a lot. He's, it, but it doesn't come out of insecurity. He's just excitable. And, and he was giving notes to an actor, and he was, uh, he was giving him hell. It was late at night, and he was, they were some... Uh, hard notes to achieve every one of them was right mm -hmm. everything he said was right you, as soon as you see that you say oh I'm not I'm going to do everything this guy tells me to do and I'm not going to challenge anything not that I, it's not my way really but uh, he, when you see somebody uh, who clearly uh, has such a mastery of uh, what it is they, they want what it is they're trying to do you it makes it much easier to go with the flow, yeah. give them what they want. There was one time, in fact, we were shooting on the uh, racetrack, and uh, they had put me outside the video village tent where Jim was inside the tent. They put me outside it so, just so I could stand in the shade, and I could hear Jim inside just giving me hell, just like, why doesn't he turn? The son of a bitch won't just turn, and, you know, he's just... I was completely fine. I was yeah. not bothered by that at all. It's like, guy's making a huge movie. Uh, it's like, I'm going to try and give him what he wants. Yeah. Well, I think I think you delivered for, for sure. Um, you also got this big thing happening kind of concurrently with all of this in Linda Vista? Vista? Vista. Vista, um, which is a play that was at Steppenwolf, your sort of home, your yeah. home base, um, that's now moved to New York, much as August Osage County did and, and, and a couple other plays you've done. Um, what is that process like bringing a Chicago show to New York? Is it, it seems like it can be a Herculean effort at times. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. It's a, it's a years long process. I wrote the play about four years ago, I think by the time I had finished our first draft. And then we did the play in the spring of 2017 in Chicago. And then we did it earlier this year in Los Angeles at the Mark Taper Forum. So this is the third production uh, or the third presentation of this production mm -hmm. because it's the same, the same director, same designers, largely the same cast. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of patience and, and I'm slow. Yeah, I, I am. I have to see things a lot. I have to work on things a lot before I sit there and go, oh, I think that's what that scene's about mm -hmm. after all. And so I was rewriting up until just a few days before uh, we opened the show. That's the way it goes. That's the nature of the, of the thing. Uh, but it's also it's very satisfying. And I'm, I, I bitch and moan about how long it takes me to get a show to New York. Uh, but the truth is that those shows are always, they always benefit from the long incubation 
process. Uh, most of my shows that have come to New York have had a, another production elsewhere before they eventually get to New York, and they've always benefited from it. Uh, yeah. If I had just opened this play straight out of the box in New York, it wouldn't have been nearly as good. Mm-hmm. Where did this play in particular come from? Because it's my, I haven't seen it yet, unfortunately, but it's my understanding, based on what I've read about it, that it is a comedy with dark elements. It's about... Uh, a certain gender politics, perhaps, maybe. I don't know if I'm unfairly classifying it as that, but like, I'm just curious what your inspiration for this, because you've you've sh- you've done a lot of different genres in your playwriting. Um, so I'm curious how you arrived at this this one. Uh, it started unlike any other play I've I've written. In that, uh, normally I think about a play for some years before I write it. I, th- I think about it. And I work quite a bit of it out in my head before I sit down at the typewriter and and start to work. Uh, I didn't do that with this. I I was really just doing some free writing, which I do sometimes, I think most writers do, just to uh, keep myself at at the desk or keep my fingers moving on the keyboard. And so I was just doing some free writing and a dialogue between a couple of characters uh, started to emerge and out of that a character started to emerge and a guy who who had a voice. I, I wanted to, I wanted to give him more opportunity to speak and hear what he had to say, and that's where Linda Vista came about. I didn't set out to address any particular issue. Mm-hmm. I didn't set out to address uh, any particular set or subset of people. I think the piece benefits from that, uh, and in fact, you know, I wrote it about, or we premiered about six months before. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, a lot of those uh, revelations started to come out, which, you know, the the world changes around your play and suddenly some things take on a different cast. Uh, so it was a job of work, actually, to continue to work on it and not make the play about those things, not mm-hmm. make the play about gender politics, because what happens is things start to get general. Uh, people start making pronouncements. Yeah. Uh, I find that unhelpful. You start but, writing to the point versus... Yeah. Yeah. Versus letting people be people. You know, you're obviously busy in film uh, and done some television and, and theater has remained a constant uh, in your career, uh, which I think is wonderful. I think so many people come up in theater and then, you know, oh, Hollywood called and I'm, I'm done. How do you balance that? I mean, like, does something, the wind change and you're like, okay, now I'm in a theater mood. I want to I wanna make a play or um, I'm curious about that sort of that creative balance, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Richard, what you're saying makes it sound as if there's a plan and there's just never been a plan. I've (laughs) just kind of stumbled blindly from one job to the next job, never knowing what's going to come next. I I will say that theater, you have to keep it a priority. It would be, uh, I could throw it away and say, oh, I'm going to go focus on this now, and I've never done that. One of the things is you have to commit to a play uh, much more in advance than you have to commit to a film. You know, mm-hmm. a film gets its financing together, say, and it's like, oh, it's time to go. And you get a call saying, uh, are you free to start shooting in a month? Uh, that's the way a lot of stuff gets made. Unless you're really, if you're Matt Damon and Christian Bale, I suppose you know you're doing Ford versus Ferrari from a lot further out. Uh, but with a play, you have to commit uh, a year out. So what I do is I just commit to the play and then I tell my agents, don't tempt me. 
Don't tell me what I'm missing <laughs> right. by doing this. Just block that time out, and I'm just unavailable during that time. Mm-hmm. So I shuddered to know what I've, what I've missed while working on shows, but that's the way I do it. You could be making your Marvel millions or something. I <laughs> uh, could be. <laughs> um, in your, in My your... wife did a Marvel movie, by the way. Oh, she did? She was great in that. Yeah, she, she did not make millions. Yeah, I'd yeah, like to yeah, point out yeah. there were not millions paid to my <laughs> okay. wife. <laughs> Good to have that, that myth dispelled. I'm glad. Um, in, your, in your non-work, I mean, I guess maybe for an artist, you're kind of always working, but like at least your head is processing things. But what do you seek out to watch or read when you're just kind of having some downtime? Is there a... A, a format you you gravitate towards a, a genre or anything like that? Not really. Uh, you know, when Carrie and I started working in TV a few years ago, we started we watched a lot of TV. Yeah. Uh, uh, this new uh, whatever the hell they call this new age of television in the world of streaming peak TV peak, or whatever. peak TV. We started yeah. watching a lot of TV, and we've stopped. Mm-hmm. We've stopped watching a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. We don't watch. I mean, we had a baby for one thing, so that will cut down on your TV time. But we, uh, we just stopped. And uh, these days, I'm watching a lot more Criterion Channel than anything else, sure. which is much more my. Uh, that's that's more my thing. Did an interest in film always run parallel to an interest in theater from from when you were kind of coming of age? Or I think interest in film actually was first. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and we didn't have access to a lot of theater, uh, very little theater, in fact. So as a kid, I became interested in film and became a film buff as a, uh, as a little kid and followed that pretty closely for a long time. I, I uh, Even as a little kid, I was interested in uh, horror movies and, uh, you know, universal horror movies, you know, hammer horror, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. My grandfather took me to a double feature of uh, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed and Dracula Has Risen from the Grave <laughs> at a drive-in movie theater, and I, I think it's affected my whole life. Sure. I was quite young when I saw that. My folks were also, I don't know, they, they weren't very careful with us in terms of the stuff we watched. I remember them taking me to see Serpico when I was six. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there was always a an interest in in that kind of stuff. But it, I, and then at some point, I I acted for the first time when I was maybe fifteen years old, and that's the point at which theater really started to become uh, an interest for me. So, yeah, it, it has always been kind of a parallel interest. It's interesting that evolution because I I can relate to that. I, you know, I was a theater um, student in, in school and and. Uh, but it started with an interest in movies and, and, and then because movies are readily available to you right. at home right. or at the theater. And then when you want to participate in the performance, then there, then theater comes along because there, yeah. there it is, you know, and then, you know, however it shifts beyond that. Um, That's why for me, I'll always go back to theater. There's something about all those people in a room. There's something about all those live people in a room watching people in a room. Yeah, uh, that a movie is just never going to replicate for me. A movie, it it has its own uh, thrills, and some of them are visceral thrills. But you can't eat popcorn while you're watching a play, mm-hmm. and you can eat popcorn while watching a movie. And think about why you can do that, right? There's just a slight level of remove with the film. I don't get when I go to see Ford versus Ferrari. I don't get nervous. Right? It's shot. It's made. It's done. It's yeah. up on the screen. There's nothing else to do. A play, it doesn't matter if I'm in it 
or if I'm just seeing somebody else's play, there's that little bit of nervousness that we're, okay, now we're all going to engage in this thing together. That is, uh, will always be thrilling for me. Yeah, there's the, the sort of social contract that's almost entered into. Um, I went to go see a play at Playwrights Horizons called uh, Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Yeah, I can't wait to see um, it. It's really, it's a really intense, talky, interesting play. Yeah. There are some loud noises in it that really were bracing. And I'd left the theater just feeling a good kind of tense. And I was like, I haven't left a movie feeling like that in a while, you know, because it, the liveness of it really just communicated. And I just think about, like, if someone, you know, in a movie theater, someone, you know, turns their phone on, checks the time, or right. talks to a friend, that would be such a transgression in, in, in that, in that yeah. theater at Playwrights Horizons. I just, yeah, it's a very different experience. One time we were on a press junket for Lady Bird, and I... Uh, I blurted out in an interview, uh, plays are better than movies and movies are better than TV. And Greta got very excited because <laughs> there was something about that idea she was really able to embrace. And she said, she said, I think it's provable when you think about the greatest experiences you've had watching a play or watching a film or watching television, right? They, uh, they stack up in, in such a way that that proves my <laughs> my theory. <laughs> I think it's a good theory. Uh, and it's a great performance in Ford Ferrari. I can't wait to see Little Women, and I can't wait to see Linda Vista. Uh, you've got a lot going on, and <laughs> congrats on all of it. Trace Letts, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, thank you. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, please find us at VanityFair.com, writing about the Golden Globes and Star Wars and The Mandalorian and Oscar season two. There's a lot happening right now. Um, and you can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts and review it and tell other people to join us and listen. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best suggestion to make any Golden Globes host better goes to Mike Hogan. More leg warmers. <laughs>